Hello, everyone. This is Sal from Bitcoin Taxes. Welcome to our podcast. Each episode, we speak to an expert with knowledge related to cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. Today's guest is Matt Metris. Matt is a frequent guest of the show. He's an EA, a crypto tax expert, and he is the owner of MDM Financial. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Sal. It's always great to be here. Yes, always a blast to have you on. You're always super informative. Um, Really appreciate you as usual. So for anybody who hasn't heard many of the podcasts that you've been a guest on, can you give us a quick um, introduction and um, your experience in the crypto tax space? Yeah, so I've been into crypto personally since uh, 2014, 15. uh, And unfortunately, I was not buying and holding at that point in time. So I should have, but I didn't. Otherwise, I'd be retired now. (laughs) But I've been operating as a practitioner since about 2017 and specifically in the crypto space done probably about a thousand crypto tax returns at this point. So lots of clients out there, lots of um, crypto tax work to be had, but um, just another year as we go into this new tax season. Yeah. And you are one of the best in the business. I've been around since 2017 and I know you and a few other contacts in this space and you are definitely one of the best in the biz. We always love talking to you. Really appreciate you. You know, your crypto stuff. We're like OGs now, man. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I know. I know. I can't believe it. It's 2023. It's wild. All right, so today we are going to discuss a few different things. We're going to start by talking about the um, infrastructure bill that was passed at the end of 2021 that was meant to have some ramifications this year. Uh, We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about two memos released by the IRS about crypto donations and crypto losses, and and you're going to talk about those. Um, But let's start with the infrastructure bill and those those, uh, aforementioned ramifications that were meant to have some effect on cryptocurrency exchanges this year, right, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. So back in uh, November of 2021, which seems like a million years ago at this point, Mm -hmm. uh, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was passed by Congress. And that uh, had a provision in it that said all virtual currency brokers, and we're going to put that word in quotes, were required to start 1099 reporting uh, as of January 2023. So this month that we're in right now is when this was supposed to have started. Um, And there were some problems with this bill because the the term broker was really, really broad and it caught up a lot of people and like entities, organizations, whatever you want to call them, um, that would never possibly be able to have the information necessary to file a 1099. So this would include, um, you know, a Bitcoin miner who mines a block and has transactions in that block would in theory be required to issue a 1099. A a hardware wallet like Ledger or, you know, something like that, if I bought it off of Amazon, they would have no no idea who I am and they would be required to issue me a 1099 for transactions Mm. that took place on my Ledger wallet, MetaMask, pretty much every DeFi protocol would be required to issue a 1099. And of course, as we know, especially in DeFi, there is no KYC. They have no idea who I am other than a wallet address. Um, So that left them in a really not fortunate position where they would have to either uh, not comply with the 1099 law, which is problematic, or just not operate in the United States at all. And when you say they, you're referring to what you were just talking about with like MetaMask, Ledger, Trezor, the, the, quote unquote brokers that would be really impossible to provide a 1099. Exactly. Yeah. Ledger, Uniswap, whatever. Um, You know, like we look at Coinbase. Sure. That's easy because they know who I am. I had to KYC just to get on there and transfer money into my bank account, et cetera. And briefly on that, on Coinbase, since you brought it up, I wanted to, to mention this. 1099s are notoriously 
bad from the exchanges like Coinbase and the centralized exchanges that are popular. A lot of people over the past few years have been getting 1099s from these exchanges, and they provide only a very limited screenshot of what's actually going on in that person's crypto portfolio, right? Absolutely. And I tell, you know, I teach a lot of classes for other tax pros. And one thing that that, that subject comes up quite frequently, and really the takeaway is, is if you have a client and they only use Coinbase and nothing else, like including Coinbase wallet or like literally nothing, mm -hmm. then the 1099 is probably going to be pretty accurate because Coinbase has all the information that they need to issue an accurate 1099. But let's just say I had two exchanges, uh, Coinbase and Gemini. And I bought Ethereum on Gemini. I sent it over to Coinbase. I sold it on Coinbase. Coinbase has no idea what I bought it for. They have no what we call basis information, which I need to correctly report my taxes. But Coinbase is still going to kick out a 1099. And instead of putting the accurate basis information in there, they're just going to put an asterisk. Um, and if if taxpayers and tax practitioners aren't carefully reviewing these documents, they may not notice that there's information missing. And a lot of times, as tax pros, we're used to getting these 1099s from like stockbrokers like E-Trade or JP Morgan or whatever. And in most circumstances, you can just take the summary number and you don't have to look at each line and review it for its own accuracy. But with crypto reports, you definitely do uh, to make sure you're not overpaying tax. And that's primarily because these crypto exchanges are not communicating with one another. So they have no way, like you said, of knowing what your basis was if you bought it on one exchange and transferred it to another exchange. Exactly, exactly. And this bill that we're talking about is supposed to fix that. So it's supposed to say that if I transfer an asset from Gemini to Coinbase, Gemini is supposed to tell Coinbase what the basis of that asset is. And and that would work in if there was an infrastructure for that, which there isn't. Um, it would work in very limited situations. But what's much more common is I take that Ethereum that I bought on Gemini and I transfer it to my MetaMask wallet first and do a whole bunch of DeFi stuff and then transfer it to Coinbase. And in that scenario, there's still no way to get the basis info over to Coinbase to have accurate reporting. Even even without that, though, would it still be complicated for Gemini to tell Coinbase the cost basis information? Because let's say you transfer it out. OK, you can get the cost basis information if you if you were to say treat that as a taxable event, um, which it's not. But you could get the cost basis information by doing that. But that would that would imply that they're using the same calculation method, i.e. FIFO that you are actually using on your transactions, right? So doesn't that kind of muddy the water of things a little oh, bit? Oh, a ton. Yeah, that <laughs> that that gets really, you're right, really muddy because there's two issues there, right? There's a logistical way of how they're gonna transfer it. And, and this bill was supposed to develop some sort of centralized repository for that information. Mm. But you're right, um, you know, most of the exchanges are using FIFO first in, first out when they generate these reports, even if you had Coinbase only, right? So. We know that the crypto uh, IRS crypto FAQ says that you can use specific identification if you meet certain requirements. Um, and most taxpayers are, are pretty easily able to meet those requirements. And so mm -hmm. even in a scenario where you have a taxpayer who only used Coinbase, it's still possible that the 1099 that gets issued, even if it was 100% accurate, would be 100% accurate for FIFO. And if that taxpayer was reporting under specific ID, they would still have a mismatch um, on what's on their tax return versus what's on their 1099. And that would probably result in some kind of notice from the IRS. We don't know for sure yet, um, but that would be really likely. So this whole thing is kind of messy. The IRS released the crypto FAQ back in 2019. So it's been a long time since they released that, but it did have some pretty significant stuff in it, which we've done a podcast about. We've discussed it. Um, and one of those things involved 
using specific identification. Yeah, the FAQ says that the transactions are FIFO by default, but a taxpayer can use specific ID as long as they meet four requirements. And the requirements are basically knowing the cost basis, the date and time of the purchase, the date and time of the sale, and the proceeds, which is the same information that we put on the 8949. Um, now it gets a little tricky because these are the only two quote unquote allowable methods. Um, but when we look at tax calculation services, you know, like Bitcoin.tax, for example, we see in there FIFO, LIFO, highest cost first out, all of them. Um, what's happening there is you're basically using a blanket method of specific identification. So you don't have to put on the tax return. I'm specifically identifying the Ethereum I bought on January 12th. You are, um, you know, just saying I'm specific. You don't even have to say it, but what you're mm -hmm. doing is saying I'm specifically identifying the highest lot lot I bought every time as the first one that I'm selling. Um, and from you know, from a calculation standpoint, that is way simpler on um, crypto tax softwares than to like pick and choose and match up every lot through like a, a real true specific identification. So you're using a blanket method under the specific ID umbrella. Yeah, and I think that's really great information because this is all going based off of what the IRS released. And as far as what they released, it gives taxpayers the options to utilize specific identifications in order to minimize their gains uh, and maybe push them forward to the next year when it's been a less uh, good year for crypto. For example, 2022 was a terrible year for crypto. So if you use specific ID in 2021, it may have it may have helped since 2022 wasn't such a great year in crypto. Can but I just add, so that um, yeah. crypto taxpayers really have a huge advantage here too, because if you are trading securities, you know, if I buy Google stock um, and I want to sell my Google stock, I have to use FIFO unless I tell my broker at the time of the sale, which lot I'm selling. So you have to contemporaneously identify uh, with securities transactions, the lot that you're selling to use specific ID. Um, with, a, with crypto, under the current information, we have the benefit of hindsight. So we can see the full year picture and sort of optimize. Um, so it, there's the, I think the reason the IRS did this is there's not really any other way to do it. I can't tell Coinbase, you know, what Ethereum I'm selling because they don't care. They don't, they don't want to hear from me and they're not going to record it anywhere until the law makes them do that. Um, and so, and especially in DeFi, there's even no one to tell what lot I'm selling. So we have to kind of, from a practical standpoint, do it this way. Um, but it does give crypto traders a much larger advantage than securities traders. Um, and because of that, I wouldn't be surprised if this provision went away at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's definitely worth uh, taking advantage of now. Yeah. And so the TLDR of everything we just talked about, basically, was that this infrastructure bill was passed back in the end of 2021. It was meant to be enacted currently January 2023. However, that's not the case because there's just too much that would need to be done in order to do it properly. And for example, either the IRS would have to go back on a lot of the stuff they said, i.e. specific identification being okay, they would have to go back on that, or these exchanges would have to work together in such a way that they're all sharing the proper information, which seems practically impossible. And all of this for what, right? Like the crypto taxpayers are already paying their crypto taxes. So 
what would be the point of making everything so complicated? Uh, who knows what the point would be, but <laughs> if what you say is correct and, and they just back down on it, I think that would be the best result here as it would just cause more confusion in an already confusing place for crypto taxpayers. So I guess we'll see where this, where this goes, but as of now, the crypto exchanges are not doing what the um, infrastructure bill said they needed to do. And you said there's no date. They didn't push it forward to any specific date. It's just kind of in limbo right now, right? Correct. They basically said that the brokers are not required to report uh, this information until the final regulations are issued for sections 6045 and 6045A. So those are two provisions of the tax code that were amended by that infrastructure bill. Um, and there's a whole process for, for submitting regulations and then there's like a review period and all this kind of stuff. So this, this might materialize this year. It might be in a future year. We really don't know. It's just sort of a wait and see at this point. Uh, it'll, it'll be very interesting. It'll be either a huge headache or a, a, a very huge headache. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we shall see. And we'll definitely be talking about it once that happens. But um, stock, up, stock up on your ibuprofen now. Yes, yes. And get to know your crypto tax professional. Get friendly with them. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So next up, two memos were recently released. And now this was a lot more recently. This was just a couple of weeks ago, January 13th. I think these were released. That's correct. Um, yeah. So two memos from the IRS. What are these memos and what do they mean? Yeah. So there was, like you said, on January 13th of 2023, there were two what's called chief counsel memorandums or chief counsel advice. They sort of use an interchangeable name um, and they both relate to digital assets, which is the term that the IRS is, is using pretty much for all of crypto, virtual currency, NFTs, whatever. Uh, they're using the term digital asset now. Um, instead of virtual currency, which they've been using for the last several years. So these two notices both came out. One is uh, explicitly about donating uh, virtual currency to a qualified charitable organization. And the other one is about deducting losses uh, for cryptos that have declined in value. Um, so I don't know which one you want to start with. They're both fascinating. Let's start with the deducting losses, because I think a lot of people I've seen a lot of people ask me about this versus the donation thing. So let's start with the losses. Yeah, just as a little bit of background. So these are these chief counsel memorandums are not what we call substantial authority. So substantial authority is is a type of guidance that a taxpayer can rely on in court and mm -hmm. say this is an official position of the law or official position of the IRS. And as long as the facts and circumstances are the same, I should expect the same treatment. So this is um, what we would call sub-substantial authority. So it's a written determination by the IRS that is basically, this is a memo between two IRS employees. And one is asking the chief counsel's office, which are basically the IRS's lawyers. Uh, they're asking the chief counsel's office for a position to take in a certain situation. Mm -hmm. And so these are internal documents and a taxpayer can't point to this and say, uh, chief counsel memorandum said that I could do this uh, and avoid penalties or avoid you know tax being assessed. But it does give us some insight into how the IRS is thinking, how they might handle a transaction like this. So the first one is uh, memorandum 2023-02011. And uh, it is basically the applicability of Section 165 to cryptocurrency that has declined in value. Now, Section 165 is titled Losses in General. Um, 
And if you read the details, the examples that they give in this memo, uh, and you're familiar with crypto in 2022 at all, they're they're talking about uh, UST and Luna. They're talking about the whole Luna crash. Mm-hmm. And they, they're getting ahead of it because I've had clients come to me already and say, I want to deduct, you know, a theft loss for my Luna because, you know, Do Kwan stole all my money or whatever. Um, but what this is looking at is if you can take a loss on your taxes for crypto that has substantially declined in value, if you still have it. And that's sort of the major catch of this first memo. Um, and, and what the takeaway is is that they say to deduct a loss, you have to have a closed and completed transaction. That means you have to have disposed of the asset somehow, um, either through selling it or they explore later on in the memo, the possibility of abandoning an asset. Um, But generally you have to get rid of the asset in some way, shape or form in order to realize a loss on it. So there's a couple different things that they take a look at here. Um, One is that, for securities, and we talked a little bit about securities earlier where crypto taxpayers have an advantage. In this situation, a securities trader has it, it has the advantage because there's a provision called 165G, which is the worthless security provision. And that basically says if you own a stock and the value of that stock becomes worthless, you can deduct it and operate as if it was sold on December 31st of that year for $0 and take the loss, even if you didn't actually sell it. So that does not translate into cryptocurrency. You can't take that worthless provision um, unless you actually dispose of the asset. So that's um, an area where securities traders come out ahead. uh, And this memo specifically addresses that. And quite bluntly, on the conclusion line, the first sentence is no. Period. <laughs> and that's how a lot of these memos are. They just go, no, you can't do that. And here's why. And it's really a pretense, right? The, the, they're putting out this memo and the facts and the discussion which come after that conclusion are really the more interesting thing. It's where we see the citations of, of the tax code and court cases and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really just the format of saying, can I do this? No, here's why. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we know it's not a worthless security. Um, and there's a whole bunch of court cases that they list there. Uh, and then they, it gets into abandonment. And, it, and so there is a treasury regulation that says, um, if you have an asset that suddenly becomes uh, obsolete or has a loss of usefulness, you can abandon it and take the loss. Now, this is also, um, something that that taxpayers want to do because the loss is an ordinary loss instead of a capital loss. So we know when we have a capital loss, um, you can only deduct uh, up to the amount of capital gains plus an additional $3,000 against your ordinary income. So here, this goes in the ordinary income bucket, which would allow you to deduct much, much more. So if you had a major loss from like Luna, for example, I know I lost 99.999% on my Luna, um, you would be able to take that ordinary loss and deduct the whole thing. Uh, And what they go into here is a couple different uh, restrictions, so to speak. So they cite a number of court cases that say uh, you actually have to abandon the thing. They don't go into what would accomplish abandonment. Uh, They say the mere intention alone to abandon is not, nor is non-use alone sufficient to accomplish abandonment. So you can't just think about abandoning or say I'm abandoning. You actually have to take some sort of verifiable affirmative step to abandon it. 
Um, but the other catch is even if you were to abandon it, it would be what's called a miscellaneous itemized deduction. Um, and the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, uh, which was passed in 2017, basically suspended miscellaneous itemized deductions from the tax code from the years 2018 to 2025. So even if you could abandon it right now and deduct it, you wouldn't be able to take the deduction. So lots of ways that, you, that taxpayers can get tripped up here uh, in trying to abandon these things. Okay, uh, so a couple things. Uh, what you were just mentioning, the itemized deductions, those are also known as casualty losses, right? Yeah, so casualty losses are another type of itemized deduction that would fall into uh, this same category. And we call them theft or casualty losses. Okay, yeah, because um, people will often ask like, hey, I, I had this rug pull. I mean, this has been a question I've seen so many times throughout the years since I started in this space where they say there was a rug pull, I lost this crypto, I'd like to deduct it as a loss. And then I have to tell people, well, in 2017, they removed the ability to claim casualty losses. And, and like you said, theft and casualty losses. And, and just to kind of summarize what you're saying, the answer is no. Even if you were to abandon it, they're, they're saying that you would have to prove abandonment, which is difficult. And then even if you were to prove abandonment, since there are no more casualty losses or itemized losses like you were talking about since 2017, even if you were to prove that you abandoned it, you still can't claim that exactly. loss. But exactly. within that wording, there is some ambiguous talk of if you are to dispose of it. It's basically saying, unless you truly dispose of it, dispose of it, aka sell it at a loss, then it's not a loss, right? Right, exactly. Okay. That, that's that's the, the TLDR on the whole thing. Yes. To, to, a loss has to be a loss. And you, you have, have to, to have yeah. gotten rid of it. Yes, yes, yes. And so a lot of people ask things like, and I know this is kind of murky, waters and there's probably like if you were to get audited you'd probably have to really have a good defense on this but if you were to like sell it to a friend like let's say i had a bunch of ust that i that i had a loss on and i could still access it and i could sell it to you for example i could say matt give me five bucks for my what was once 100k worth of, of ust thankfully that's not a real scenario for me but if i did that where i said I, i'm going to sell you this this ust for five dollars I am selling it. I'm selling it at a loss. Is that then an actual loss, a crypto loss? That's an it depends answer. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I know. Well, I know. Yeah. Only because so you would have to be able to prove that the transaction was an arm's length transaction. So your the best situation is to just sell it to a stranger, whether that's on a DeFi exchange or a centralized exchange or anywhere okay. that, okay. you know, the, the token is still being traded. And that's one thing that um, this particular memo highlights is that there are still exchanges that trade Luna and, and Terra, even though they're worth minimum value. Um, and I think, I was trying to find it here, on one of the pages, uh, it actually references in the footnote, it references coin market cap, which is surprising, you know, because that's just a website that tracks crypto prices, but they uh, reference coin market cap uh, to prove that um, Terra is still being traded uh, as of January 1st of 2023. So that's the best case. Um, where it gets a little trickier is, is when you have things that are completely illiquid, like if it's a rug pull and there's no way, like the, the tokens are locked right. or you have an NFT that nobody wants to buy or something like that, that makes it a lot harder. So the best step would be to, to sell it to a non-related party. The interesting thing though, and not to get too deep into this, I mean, I think you provided all the info, but just thinking about this, you refer to it as an arm's length trade. Is that what you said? Yeah. It can't be that. Okay. So just using context, I mean, 
what if I were to sell this UST to a friend and say, I believe in UST. I believe it's going to come back. That's not an, you know, take the, I'm giving you five, I'm giving you my hundred UST and I truly believe that it's going to go back to the moon. How can, I mean, the IRS can't prove that you don't believe that, right? No. And it wouldn't be that, like, it's not so much the intent there as it is like the relationship, right? If you sell it to your brother, like that's probably not as good. You sell it to your friend. Um, that's a little bit better, but you'd have to, you know, they would zoom out and say, is there more to this transaction uh, than meets the eye? Did you, did you trade something? You know, did they send you an right, asset, right. Um, you know, or, or value? Yeah. yeah. Or, or is this actually a gift versus a sale? Because you, with a gift, we wouldn't get to deduct the loss. Um, so that's maybe where intent matters. Um, that's why it's just better to sell it to an unrelated third party. Yeah. And, and there are services like that popping up, I think, where they'll buy your um, they'll buy your kind of like dead coins and stuff and they'll buy it for a small amount. So something worth looking into. Also, I would obviously suggest making sure you talk to a tax bill like Matt before doing something like that, because you're opening yourself up to questions if you do do something like that, presumably. Right. Yeah. You don't ever want to add liability to your right. tax return when it yeah. can be avoided. Especially if you're talking about $50 where you're just, <laughs> you know, like you had a $50 loss. You're like, I'm pissed about this and I want to claim this loss. So I'm going to go to this third party website and sell my USD for pennies. And that's fine. Go to the third party and sell it. Take the loss. That's what I did. You know, I sold mine. I had, um, I guess it was basically wrapped Luna on the Ethereum blockchain and, and I sold it for, for like 0.000004 ETH or something like that, you know? Um, so it near 100% loss, but I got rid of it. And so I can take that loss on my tax return. All right. So TLDR, you can't really claim a loss unless you're actually selling it for a loss. Pretty simple. We pretty much knew that, but it's still good to have this information. And when I say we knew this, I meant us in the tax space. Because crypto taxpayers are always asking this question, how do I claim this loss? So hopefully you're listening. Now you know it sucks, but we don't make the rules. Yeah, Reddit and TikTok definitely didn't know that information. But... Yeah, for sure. All right, next up, crypto donations. That's the second memo. Can you talk a little bit about what that memo is about? Yeah, so this is a little bit, it's frustrating, but it is the correct application of the law. So the, in this case, the law is what's frustrating, not necessarily the memo itself. Um, and what it's saying is um, when you donate property to a charity, so this is not gifts you know, to your friend, this is only a qualified charity, like a 501c3, uh, and there are many of them. And I think we've, we've, you've covered some of them on this show. I think I was on with Connie one time. Mm -hmm. um, and there, so there are charitable organizations that take digital assets. And you can donate those digital assets to them. And it can be quite advantageous, because if you've held it for more than a year, and it's appreciated, you get to take the donation of the fair market value instead of your original basis. So it can be really advantageous to uh, make these donations, but there's some major catches to it. So if they're over $500, you have to fill out a specific form called the 8283. And if they're over $5,000 and you donate property to a charity, and this is not crypto specific, if you donate property to a charity over $5,000, you have to get a qualified appraisal. And so that means a third party that's been, you know, registered with the IRS 
figures out what the fair market value of that donation is. And so this is really, you know, this is in the tax code because of things like art donations and things like this. I, I have a painting that I bought for a thousand dollars and I donate it to a museum and, and the fair market value is worth a million. You know, we need someone besides me and the museum to vouch for the fair market value in order to get an accurate deduction on my tax return. So uh, that's in the code. Section 170 F11C, and that basically says if you if you donate any property over $5,000, you need an appraisal. And so that's been in the code forever. It has nothing to do with cryptocurrency. So the question that this memo is answering is if I donate cryptocurrency worth more than $5,000, do I need a qualified appraisal? And the answer is yes, because that's what the law says. Now, the law has specific carve outs for stock. So if I again have my Google stock and I donate it to a charity, I can take the fair market value and I can just look it up on, you know, Google or whatever stock tracking app that I'm using and get the current spot price uh, at the time of the donation and base that as my fair market value. But I can't do the same thing with crypto. I can't go to coin market cap, even though it's, it's, you know, listed in the other memo, I can't use CMC, or, you know, a spot price on the exchange to determine the fair market value, I have to pay an appraiser to do that. And in all likelihood, the that's exactly what the appraiser is doing, they're going to look up the yeah. spot price, uh, and, and give you that back. Uh, but there are situations with like, well, you know, garbage coins where the liquidity might be really poor and the spot price wouldn't be entirely accurate. But when we're looking at things like uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of the major tokens, like it, it's kind of ridiculous yeah. um, that this is a requirement, but it is what the law says. And until Congress changes the law, this would be a necessity to make those donations. Okay. Next question then. I know a lot of people in the crypto space, you know, both of us do. I've never met somebody that called themselves a qualified crypto appraiser. How do you find that person? And also that sounds like the easiest job on earth. So how do you become a qualified crypto appraiser? Yeah, I, there, <laughs> so there are certifications to become one. I have not looked into it. I should though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the extent of my knowledge on the subject, because I have never um, had a client make a donation this large, mm. um, is I've Googled it and there are firms out there. If you Google, you know, qualified crypto appraiser uh, or cryptocurrency qualified appraiser, there's searches, there's results that will come up. So I can't vouch for, you know, yeah. how legitimate or, or the quality of any of those services, but they do exist. And I do, I have just the other day had another uh, tax professional reach out to me asking for a recommendation. I didn't have one to give, but so there are taxpayers who are coming across this problem. Interesting. Yeah. Is it the same with NFTs? I guess that's a, another question. You talk about art. Yeah. So NFTs would have the same requirement and that makes a lot more sense, yes. right? Because how yes. do you value a board ape? And if I'm going to donate my ape, you know, there's different criteria that can make an ape more or less valuable. Um, and there aren't really comparable sales. So that makes a lot more sense. But if I'm just donating to Bitcoin to a charity, like it's pretty easy to figure out what that value is. All right. Thanks for going over those. Uh, finally, I just want to bring up the question about cryptocurrency on the 1040 tax form. Um, yeah, we love this question because they keep moving it. They keep changing it. Um, so this is the fourth iteration we've seen of it. It started on the 2019 return and it was on a what was called Schedule 1. Um, and, and that year, you didn't have to answer it if you didn't file Schedule 1. So that was problematic. So they moved it to the front page of the 1040. Um, and last year, they made it a required question, meaning you couldn't e-file your return unless you had checked yes or no, because so, a lot of taxpayers would just ignore it, send off their return, and then not worry about it, not having answered it, right? So 
couple uh, changes from last year. So the biggest change is they changed virtual currency to be digital assets. And we talked about that a little bit earlier in the show. Um, it, it was problematic. It's problematic and helpful. <laughs> so um, all of the historical IRS guidance, of which there is very little, uses virtual currency as the terminology um, and does not use digital assets. However, that infrastructure bill that we talked about uh, uses digital asset. And that is the only place in the tax code where, where virtual currency is referenced and it's re referred to as digital asset. So it makes sense that the IRS made this change, but it's also sort of beneficial because there's a lot of people who are maybe not in the crypto proper space, right? They're, they're into NFTs, they're into DeFi gaming or the metaverse or something like that, and don't really think of themselves as transacting in virtual currency, but maybe would think of an NFT as a digital asset. So this might help more people check yes when they should be checking yes. So that's the big change. Um, they also broke the question into two parts. So it used to be one sentence and now it's an A and a B. And it's, did you receive? And then it says, as a reward, award, or payment for property or services. Now, this is some clarification because prior it just said, did you receive any virtual currency? Mm -hmm. um, and the problem we ran up against is if you bought, if, you, if I go on an exchange and I take my fiat currency and I buy crypto, um, how do I not receive it after I send Coinbase my dollars, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, the question would imply I should be checking yes, but the FAQ was specifically telling me to check no. Um, so that is a, a major change. And the only other major change here is on the, the second half, they say sell, exchange, gift, or otherwise dispose of a digital asset. Uh, and that gift is brand new. So that the question didn't ask about gifts prior to this year. And so I think the IRS is realizing that there's some gifting of crypto happening that isn't being reported. Um, once you get over certain thresholds, you have to file a gift tax return. And then once you get over substantial thresholds, it's like $12 million, then you have to pay gift tax. Um, but there are, I've seen, you know, gifts that large. So there are situations where um, the IRS wants to make sure they're not missing out on tax there. Okay. So most people are going to be checking yes on those questions that are, that are listening to this podcast, at least. Yeah, I would think so. And also in the 1040 instructions, they've really expanded some of the detail in there. Digital assets takes up almost a full page of the instructions now wow. uh, where they give some examples. Um, just some other interesting insight in there. Like they mentioned staking. If you've, if you've engaged in staking, you should check yes. Doesn't explicitly say whether or not you should be reporting ta staking as taxable, but it does mention staking in the instructions. So it's just interesting to see how these little bits and pieces flow out of the IRS uh, to kind of indicate where things might be going. Yes, definitely. This is always interesting to talk about. Um, I'm looking forward to and also dreading the update about the infrastructure bill and the and the reporting uh, that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. So as soon as that happens, um, I'll be messaging you and asking you to come back on the podcast, Matt. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm also looking forward to and completely dreading tax. <laughs> season, so. Yes. Also, same, same boat, man. Same boat. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure taxpayers are in a similar boat, but uh, you know, to to close it out and to wrap it all up in a nice bow. If you are dreading it, Bitcoin.tax makes it easy. We try and make it as easy as possible. We put out these informative podcasts. And then if it's still too difficult for you, that's why guys like Matt Metris exist. Matt is the man. He will help you get it all figured out. So uh, use Bitcoin.tax, use Matt Metris, uh, whatever you got to do to get it done, but pay those taxes on that crypto and you won't have to worry about uh, hearing from the IRS, hopefully. Absolutely. And then Matt, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you? What's your social media, et cetera? 
Yeah, the, the website is uh, bitcointaxes.me, uh, not no affiliation, uh, and uh, uh, mdmemdeem on Twitter is is probably the best place to find me on socials. That's where I post all of my garbage content about crypto and taxes. It's always enjoyable to see your tweets, Matt. <laughs> Keeps me from doing actual work. <laughs> Makes me feel like I'm doing work while I'm on Twitter. So that's right. Uh, that's a plus because I'm looking at tax content. Exactly. That's how I run my entire day. <laughs> All right. Perfect, Matt. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And Matt, have a great day. You too, Sal. Thanks. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Bitcoin Taxes podcast. You can find out more information about today's guest by going to talk.bitcoin.tax. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could give us a positive review on whichever podcast platform you listen to the episode on. Don't forget, you can go to Bitcoin.tax for any of your cryptocurrency tax calculation needs. Have a great day, everybody, and thanks again for listening.